Hello and welcome to Leadership Behaviours Unpacked. Today I'm joined by Dr. Rebecca Duffy, a GP for over 25 years and partner at Mendip Country Practice for the last 13. Alongside being a GP, Becca has been involved in medical education for most of her career. She's been a lecturer at the University of Dundee before moving to Somerset, where she's led a GP training scheme for the past 10 years. Becca has a particular interest in teaching consultation skills and remains a GP trainer, facilitator and appraiser. Managing risk and uncertainty has always been a fundamental part of being a GP and helping to support young GPs to develop their skills and cope with not being perfect is really important to Becca. She strives to create a culture in her own practice that is supportive and where learning from things that haven't gone so well is encouraged, valued and not judged. I'm excited that Becca has joined me today to talk about her experiences, the changes that she's seen, and how the pressure to be perfect can be managed when perfect is actually an impossibility. Thank you for joining me today, Becca, and welcome to the podcast. So thank you, Becca, for joining me today. Um, We've often talked about the challenges facing leaders in the NHS and GPs specifically um, and the role that the public see versus the reality of a doctor who's also running a business. Um, So I wonder whether you could start by just describing what a typical day might be for you if there is such a thing. Yeah, there is. Well, let's say last Thursday was uh, probably a fairly typical day for me. So I was, um, I did an ordinary surgery in the morning, which these days, COVID time, is all booked telephone appointments, unless I specifically uh, agreed that someone needs to come in to see me. So Mm. I probably had about I don't know, three or four people who I had booked in to see face-to-face and then probably about another 10 people I spoke to on the phone for a variety of things, in between which um, I was supervising a couple of trainee doctors so they'd come and see me for queries and questions on the patients they'd seen. Uh, We had a bit of a staff issue to deal with and I'm the HR uh, partner so had to deal with, with some things for that. Uh, sort out all the documents that come in, letters from consultants and um, and other places, reports, results, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, Did a home visit to a lady who was uh, quite unwell and didn't really want to go to hospital but um, had to, well, basically she wasn't really capable of saying no, so I had to sort her out and get her sent to hospital. And then I was duty doctor in the afternoon, which was, as it was the Thursday before Easter, relatively busy with people with, you know, acute illnesses or things they needed sorting out. Um, And so we finished, so the surgery closed at half past six. I did start at eight. And then by the time I'd finished all the documents and everything else, plus sorting out our because we're in the middle of doing all the COVID vaccinations, making sure we'd all invited the people for this week's uh, COVID vaccinations. I think I left about half past eight. So that was quite a long day. Yeah. Not normally there until half past eight, but I am regularly there until about half past seven. Yeah, yeah. And that would be a fairly typical day. And I think one of the things that's always surprised me in talking to you is that quite often I think people, the public would think of, the patient-facing job being the job that you do. And what I kind of see and hear you talk about, and you described a bit of it then, is that you will see patients and do all of the things that surround that. Plus, if we think about COVID, which I guess has highlighted the massive logistical operations that you have to be able to organise to get people through for all of their jabs, coordinating with all of the other... GP surgeries around and then you happen to throw in then a little comment but I know that there's often more than that which is around managing the actual realities of the practice because you've got quite a lot of staff so it's really about running a business and and being a doctor what kind of skills and behaviors are critical for you and for trainees coming through now I think when I went through medical school, and I think probably still, the the focus is very much on the clinical work, which is obviously the reason that you initially go into medicine and you're, you know, you're very, it's what you want to do. And so obviously cl- 
clinical skills are vital and that includes um, the clinical knowledge and practical skills, but communication skills, communication skills are just vital. Mm. And you can take a lot of that into the other things. But I think as well, it's, uh, you have to be very well organised. I think you need to be organised. You've got to be able to prioritise um, but then you've also got to have some other people skills beyond just communicating because you're managing all sorts of different people and lots mm. of different relationships. So there's the people who work for you. Um, there's the um, more junior doctors or other people that you're helping to train because, I mean, I've always had an education role, but whether you have or not, you're, it is part of the accepted you know, duties as a doctor that you will be involved in teaching and training yeah. and mentoring and clinical supervision. So there's those other sort of skills that I think they pay more attention to them nowadays, but they weren't mentioned when I went through mm. medical school. There was nothing about managing a business. Um, so, yeah, financial management as well, um, employing people, um managing people, staff issues. I mean, obviously, you know, we do have people to help us with that. And as yeah. you know, depending on the size of your of your business, how many people, you know, you have involved in doing some of those things. But ultimately, you, you are responsible. Yeah. What's the biggest difference? You mentioned some of that about not being, when you were a trainee, not being sort of really mentioned or trained at all on any of those aspects. For trainees coming through now, the ones that... Um, you've been responsible for training. And I know that, you know, you've had a big role in terms of training of new GPs for the for the area, mm-hmm. not just. So it'd be interesting to hear about kind of when you work with those, what's the biggest kind of difference for them that you... So I think when I went through training, there was really virtually no mention about um, leadership or... Yeah teaching skills or any of that sort of stuff it was just I think assume that you'd learn it by osmosis or you just as you went up you know as you as you progressed you would learn it whereas now it is formally recognized so in the curriculum of of GPs in training there is an increasing emphasis on um, leadership and that trainees are encouraged to um, do projects and actually we talk about it a lot more and about what what they need to mm. do and they are encouraged to 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 do things to help them and, and say what it is which which wasn't mentioned you know when I was training I mean yeah. I was lucky enough to do a fellowship after I'd done my GP training which helped me with a lot of that sort of stuff yeah but otherwise it, it wasn't a formal part of training yeah before yeah so unless you had a, an interest in it mm-hmm. you kind of would just yeah learn or along you just, the way. yeah I mean, most people learn along the way. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, people may have, as they went up, got put into leadership programs higher up because there was always there's there's a NHS management leadership program, and over the last twenty thirty years, as clinicians and have gone into more management positions, there has been more of that available, mm. particularly within secondary care, and and if you got into some of the the the, the senior positions yeah. there would there was more training available but yeah. it it wasn't wasn't overt certainly yeah. when I was first trained when I was a junior doctor yeah and we, and we hear a lot I think you know if, if I think about some of the big corporates that I've worked with over the years there's a huge emphasis you know and almost the more senior you get the more leadership development support you get mm-hmm. you know you get a lot of leadership development, whether that's through business schools or internally, if the organization's big enough, you're likely to get access to uh, coaches to support you. Um, and, and actually, if, I guess if I think back to, you know, some of the stories that you hear about very senior doctors within hospitals, within specialisms, and some of the behaviors that you kind of hear about, it's really interesting, that shift, isn't it, to saying, well, actually, that that sort of command and control, that seniority of, you know, you do as exactly as that person says and you mm-hmm. has shifted. Um, is the support, you mentioned that like that, that leadership program that does exist in there, is that enough? Should they have access to more? 
support than than is available? I think probably yes. Um, and I think, I mean, I you know I can't speak from direct experience of secondary care recently because you know I've been a, I've been working as a GP for twenty five years, mm. but obviously I've got you know friends and colleagues who are in secondary care. And I think unless you are in a management position, you don't necessarily get it highlighted as that's yeah. what you you might need yeah and even in the senior management positions I think because there's always a there's there's always a sort of pull on your time yeah. because if you're doing more on the management side or the teaching side that squeezes your clinical side yeah. but you went in originally to be a doctor yeah. and so you're still trying to do the clinical work and yeah. most people in those positions will still be trying to do quite a lot of clinical work and certainly I know I find that that there's many other things that pull on my time yeah but actually I also still need to see my patients and want to see my patients yes. that's exactly you know yeah. that's as you I, said that's why you wanted that's to be why a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor you know. yeah and, and, it, and it's when I think about um what you've just said and that that sort of about accountability and it sounds as if you have many masters in many ways so actually if so if I kind of asked you you know who who are you accountable on a day-to-day basis so on a day-to-day basis um sort of there isn't I mean I am my own manager in yep. in primary care in my practice um I'm a partner because it's a partnership it's a small business we hold a contract with the NHS but okay. as a GP I am not salaried I'm a, I'm self-employed um, and we run our business. Um, and yes, obviously, our main contract I think, is, is with the NHS and that is a very tight contract. So mm. absolutely, I'm accountable to many people on how we deliver that for specifications on clinical performance. Our prescribing is all looked at. Mm. You know, we have CCGs prescribing performance. So lots and lots of people looking at our performance, clinical indicators, things like the Care Quality Commission come in and inspect us. And so we've got many people looking at us from that point mm. of view. But And I have to do a annual appraisal where I have to, you know, demonstrate that I'm keep up to date and and, and those sorts of things. So, but I don't have an, I don't have a, a line manager as such. Yep. Okay. Um, I don't have anyone like that who's yeah. looking at my performance. Yeah. I have my partners. So, you know, so we have a, a partnership and I'm accountable to them. Yeah. Um, and I'm obviously accountable insofar as my patients, you know, in, 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 yeah. you know, um, delivering service to them. But it's not a, it's not, you know, it, it's different. It would be different in a big hospital. That would okay. Be, that would be there would be a, a more bit clear hierarchy yes. within that. Yes. Yeah. So, so how the hell do you balance all of those potentially quite conflicting accountabilities? So if I'm a patient and I come in and I've heard that a friend of mine who lives in Birmingham has a particular drug that works miracles on a condition that I want the same one. Yeah. Um, but actually it's either not you believe it's a better one or it's a really expensive one. And then there's all sorts of like your partners will have a view, the trust will have a view. How do you balance those conflicting accountabilities? So I think in the NHS, I feel I've not worked in, I've not worked in another system. So I've not worked in another country where people pay for their healthcare directly. Um, So I feel at an advantage in, in that my delivery of my, care to my patients does not directly correlate to my pay as such okay insofar as I'm paid to you know to have each person on my list for the year regardless of how many times they come to consult okay yeah so I'm not you know so so that's so there's no incentive for me to increase the number of consultations and no incentive for me to prescribe specific drugs because I although we have a drug budget that we're supposed to adhere to that's very much on the context of um we have guidelines on cost effectiveness for the whole nhs i don't stand stand to gain any sort of Mm. individual financial benefit from being a good cost effective prescriber my motivation for that is that 
if I'm if I can be as cost effective, then there's more to go around for all my patients. Yes. Yeah. Not that my profit's going to go up. Yes. So from that yeah. point of view, it's much easier. And if people come and we do stand in a in a slightly conflicting role in that on the one hand, I'm in the individual patient's advocate. And when I've got that individual patient in front of me, my my aim is to do the best I can mm. for them. Um which might not always be what they want. Hmm. What, what they read on my, Google. What my personal, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, I, what I judge might be in their best interest. And we try really hard, you know, and I certainly try very hard to come to a shared understanding with people mm. as to what might be the, you know, what we're going to do and what might be in their best interest. It might not necessarily what they necessarily want, but at least I am not beholden to an insurance company yeah. or I'm not you know it's not them paying me directly for my service which yeah. I think takes yeah. away quite a few conflicts of interest okay yeah so so from that point of view it's it's better but it can equally be frustrating in that yeah I can know that because my CCG has commissioned a certain service or said that that particular drug is available because they've decided that that's what we're going to do in this area. But if you go over the border into a different CCG, there might be a different decision. And that can be quite hard to explain to people. Yeah. Um, You know, um, so, yeah. Um, So there can, you know, there are those conflicts on. And there's also the conflict of... I've got that person in front of me mm. who to deal with and what I give them. And usually the main resource I can give them is my time yeah, um, rather than specific, you know, because it's not really my choice what drugs are available to them if they're not on the formulary or if an operation or a service yeah. is not available or, or there's a waiting time. That's not really within my mm. gift. But the, the amount of time I give someone is it within my gift. But if I give an awful lot of time to that one person, that means I've got less time to give to the other people who might need yeah. some of my time. And that's that's a that's always a bit of a um attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the average amount of time that you would have in an ideal world for each person? I don't, I, that's the wrong question, actually, because it's not about in an ideal world. So in a typical day, a typical day. if you were kind of had a certain number of patients to see, what would be the, the kind of goal time that you'd have with them? And it really depends on the person. So my currently, my telephone appointments are booked for 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, so it's booked for a telephone appointment. There's a 10-minute slot, but it is pretty nominal. Um when we were seeing when we were booking people directly in for face to face, we had moved in my practice to fifteen minute appointments uh, because, in reality, the complexity of what by the people who get to come and see me, mm. usually most people come with more than one problem these days. Yeah, um, save them up, save them up, come with several, and, <laughs> well, and also because actually their medicine is much more complex. Yeah, um, people are older have of several conditions, quite a lot of different things going on. Um, so it's often quite complex. So yeah. it it varies from person to person and what I'm doing. So, you know, some of my appointments, if it was a quick follow-up for something and we know each other quite well and we're just mm. checking in on something, actually I might do that telephone call in five minutes. Yeah. But another call might take half an hour. Mm. Um, so I would say for for someone new or someone where it's not just a quick follow-up on something probably I need at least 15 minutes really and that's a hell of an ask isn't it because if I think about my job and you know I have my clients have the luxury of probably between an hour and 90 minutes so I have time to hear what's not being said Mm mm-hmm which is often where a lot of the issues lie, yeah. isn't it? It's not in the very obvious, this is the problem I'm no. presenting with. It's actually yeah. what's not being said and it takes time to get someone to trust you yeah. and to open up. And so, that, How do you do that in okay. 15 minutes? <laughs> so that is, sometimes that's not possible in 15 minutes mm. and that is a key skill. So one of, um, one of my you know, professional passions has always been around um, uh, teaching uh, communication skills yeah. and the, the you know, absolute key importance. I said, you know, sort of earlier that one of, you know, you've, 
you absolutely need clinical skills, you need clinical knowledge, but none of those are any good whatsoever if you don't have communication and consultation skills. Yeah. So it, you can know everything, but if you can't communicate with your patient and actually understand what the problem is and what's important to them, and I spend a lot of time um, trying to teach uh, trainees and help them develop these skills and it's what I've spent a lot of my professional yeah. education time on is you know the skills around sort of active listening and looking at people and really really asking really asking about what people are thinking yeah so I've got quite a lot of shorthands for trying to get to what people are thinking what are their ideas what are their concerns and really really importantly what are they expecting yeah. What are they expecting or what they think might happen, what they hope might happen, what they think might be helpful and how this is affecting them? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's, the, you know, and, and actually often that's where I start and that's more important. And actually I'll get a lot of the clinical information that I need from asking those questions and then I can go in and fill the gaps for the yeah. rest of the clinical stuff on making a diagnosis because one of the things I often say to my trainees, you come out of hospital and you come out of medical school very focused on making a diagnosis. Yes. And, and actually, yeah. my first question is, can I? do I know what the problem is? Mm. Now, that might be a diagnosis, but often it's not. There's a problem, um, and that might be within a clinical context. But actually, in this day and age, as people are more secular and don't go to priests um, and the world is complicated and stressful. Uh, you know, you can't separate out people's um, mental well-being and physical well-being yeah. and their context and the social, and they all go together into how someone actually presents and how, you know, one condition affects someone so someone yeah. might have one condition and it affects them in a certain way and they manage it in a certain way it should be really different for someone else with Absolutely. the same disease yes and equally masses of people present with symptoms yeah. that are very real but aren't caused by an underlying disease as such yeah yeah uh, that is so and I, I guess the skill required to be able to unpick that is huge because as you say, the same disease could be causing or, or the same symptoms could be causing one person absolute distress mm -hmm. and somebody else not much impact whatsoever. Absolutely. I think a lot of it comes with time and experience. Yeah. You know, I am, you know, in the latter stages of my career and I've been doing this a long time. And, yeah. and I've also been very fortunate over the years to work with an awful lot of great doctors and because of my education role have some time to step back and reflect on my yeah. practice and watch other people practice yeah. and teaching it really helps you because you know that's the best way to learn yeah and to think about what you do and mm. why you're doing it and to reflect on when it didn't go so well you know yeah and the importance of the importance of of acknowledging you know, we aren't, none of us are perfect and none of us ever, ever can do a perfect consultation or anything yeah. like that. And that's a really difficult one. And it's a really difficult one for a lot of trainees coming through because there's a real thing about being perfect yes. and also the high stakes of making a mistake. Yeah. And this is something that I really wanted to talk to you about. I think both of those aspects of, um, I guess it goes back a little bit to the accountability piece, actually, doesn't it? Well, mm. quite a lot, because there's almost that, as you say, that pressure to be perfect. So you become a doctor, um, and, and in your case, a GP, and there is that drive to be able to diagnose very quickly, mm -hmm. to be able to resolve that individual's problem. And that has to come, doesn't it? If we think about all the studies on on drive and actually that sort of drive for perfection and the impact that has on the mm -hmm. mental well-being of the individual who kind of I guess you know you go into something like medicine and actually having gone through even the qualifications to get to medical school and mm. to get through medical school you're going to be a kind of person who's already got you may be very lucky to wing your way through all of that, but actually they're rare. Those yeah. people are rare, aren't they? So the people who've come through that path mm -hmm. are going to have worked incredibly hard. Yeah. And also not used to failing. So to no. have got there, yes, you will have worked hard, but also you will 
you will, have, you will have virtually never failed anything. Yeah. Because you to you know, yeah. So you are not used to not used to failure. Failure at all. And and I think I'm interested in talking a bit about that that pressure to be perfect, but also the other side of that. So within business, we often talk about, you know, it's important to allow vulnerability, to express vulnerability, to be good enough and not strive for that perfection. But actually the reality in the medical world is that the consequences of not of not being perfect, of things not being accurate, et cetera, are massive. Potentially. It depends, you know, it depends where you are. And obviously there has been a lot of work in recent years and some, some great work around um, some of the very high-risk situations like anaesthetics and in yeah. surgery and bringing in some of the things that's been learned from other industries, particularly the airline industry and yeah. from, the, um, from you know, those sort of things around um, the team working and flattening structures and yeah. and, and being, a, you know... Um, and where perfection is needed. Yeah. And where and, it really isn't yet, yeah. and and what's humans and what systems and what yeah. bits that you can that you can design to try and prevent the sort of never events. Yes, but so a lot of work has gone into those, which are quite those sort of ones. The very technical ones are much much easier to do. So it's okay. much easier to do that. What I do is much harder to do because it's it's much more and there's a way more uncertainty and things and fortunately most of the time I even if I make a mistake it doesn't necessarily have an immediate catastrophic impact okay it could do but a lot of a lot of um we we medicine is very much I think um an experiential thing when you're learning it. You cannot possibly learn it without doing doing it. it. Um, And that sort of, all of those things on pattern recognition Mm. are vital. And that's experience of um, pattern recognition of and and being able to make decisions quickly and things. Um, But, and unfortunately, you know, the Swiss cheese model of the things lining up and a lot of little things having to line up for the catastrophic. Yeah. Mostly the little things you might get away with, but hopefully you notice them so that yeah. you can go back and look at why did that happen? Have we, you know, there's lots of things around systems that we can improve, that we can try and improve. But the human factor stuff mm. is, the, you know, is really, really important. And yes, the perfectionist tendency is something that I've seen a, a lot Um and causes great stress to people, yeah, because it's very difficult. If actually, it's impossible to be perfect. Yes, totally impossible. Um, but for for many uh, young doctors, um, you know that not wanting to ever get anything wrong because they really care and they yes. want to do it. They want to do a good job and they care about people. And so that can be you know it can be very stressful on many fronts. Um, so it's very stressful if. The system doesn't allow you to do what you think is right for your patient. Mm. So whether that's access to treatments or that you've got very long waiting times or things like that. So that's very stressful on one hand. And also, if you are working in an environment where you're very pressured. So, you know, I, I probably have developed over the years... Uh, quite a lot of of ways of managing prioritizing and being able to work out what's the most important Mm. thing that I've got to do right now and what I can maybe wait a bit um but I know and that's one of the skills that we have to try and teach our our juniors and in when we've got you know very busy day with an awful lot of pressures Mm. and things how do you how do you manage that how do you prioritize how do you try and spot the things that and really time critical that you've got to do, first of all. But also actually saying to people that actually you can't be perfect, you won't be perfect, and you will make a mistake. Okay. And that's that can be really tough because there is a real culture. And certainly in recent years, there's been an increasing fear culture. Yeah. Um, an increasing fear that if you get it wrong that you'll be taken to court or potentially even be sent to prison. And, you know, they are rare, but there have been some very high-profile cases. Yes, they have. Very high-profile cases where people have 
made a mistake in when you read about it and you think that could have been me I yeah. can exactly see how that happened yeah that could have been me it wasn't it wasn't Harold Shipman it wasn't someone who was a psychopath it was someone actually just trying to do their job probably in very difficult circumstances under pressure mm. without enough support and this feeling of that they've been scapegoated yeah um and that there's you know that and that the system hasn't supported them um and that you know provide it induces a lot of fear in yeah. a lot of my junior colleagues and some of my senior colleagues in fact who are getting to the point of going actually you know I don't think I need to do this anymore I don't need to take this pressure yeah I'm I'm going to retire I mean the thought of you know a role where as you say a mistake could land you in jail mm-hmm. is terrifying yeah is, and, and I, I guess mean, notwithstanding does, the mistake that, of, you know, your main concern is the mistake of if you, you know, someone yeah. comes to an, an, an avoidable harm. Yes. So it, it, it's an avoidable harm. And I think as well, this is a societal thing as well as medicine, but you go through medical school with the whole thing about helping people and saving lives. Yes. And actually we're not very good about talking about the fact that everyone's going to die one day. Yeah. Um, so some lives can't be saved. Some lives can't be saved. And, you know, that. that so that's, that's one thing. But it's the avoidable harm thing. And you absolutely... Because if something does go wrong, there is... There is more than one victim. There is the person it happened to and obviously their family. But the health professionals involved are always devastated. Absolutely devastated. Mm. As well as any fears about, you know, what might happen to to them sanctions-wise. And this isn't just doctors. This happens to nurses, to everybody. Yes. And depending on the culture and the organisation they work in, you know, they could have been trying their best and they feel like they've gone and tried their best and then all they get is criticism and yeah. sanction yeah. and that yeah. sort of thing. And that kind of inevitable scapegoat of it easier for one yeah. person to take that rap than to admit there's an issue and sadly, in the system. And sadly, it is often the most junior yeah. who get scapegoated. So within that context, you know, obviously one of the most important or one of the most critical ways that we learn is to get mistakes. stuff wrong. Absolutely. So we make a mistake and we hopefully learn from that mistake yes. and we look at what and whether that is a personal mistake and a personal kind of learning or whether that's about a system and actually well okay mm-hmm. what went wrong and i think some of the work that i've done in the past around um appreciative inquiry where actually you'd go in and say okay at some point this was working perfectly mm-hmm. and when it was what was the things that were happening the system the behaviors whatever and then be able to kind of flip that and say okay on this occasion where did we make that mistake but if you've got this pressure either like self-driven where mm-hmm. actually i cannot make a mistake because i do not fail and this mm-hmm. i will drive myself to that point or because actually something's gone wrong in that system and you know there has been a mistake how do you how do you, when you talk to your trainees, you said, you know, it's really hard for them to hear that. How do you create that culture where it's okay to put your hand up and go, I'm not sure I've done this right, or I think I've done something wrong and I need some help, yeah. rather than that culture that can be created where mistakes are buried mm-hmm. and things aren't learned in the system yeah. because actually everyone's too scared? I think you have to do it in multiple ways. One, you have to have the formal policies and all the rest of it and systems and and things where you say yep we look at so we've stopped calling them significant events um a significant event is now now has a very specific gmc sort of uh, definition right. of things that you know are really um sort of uh very serious untoward incidents or things that, you know, are being investigated at an official level Mm. rather than now we try to call them learning events to make them so that it's actually... So the word is already in there. Yeah. So we're talking about a learning event. So one, that you have those and that you have meetings and you have sort of like, this is what this is what we do. But also you've got to model it. You've got to model it and you've got to when people, you know, when something hasn't gone well, you go, do you know, I got that wrong. (laughs) I got that wrong there, and what I got wrong was this. Yeah. And I think I got it wrong because whether it was, you know, I was really tired, yeah. I was distracted by something else, I needed a cup of tea, um, actually, uh, you know, we've got a problem with our system here, yeah. 
you know, someone didn't know that that was what needed to happen. You know, we've got a training issue or anything like that. Mm. And so I think that's really important. And also just being really supportive to the trainees because you will spot their mistakes. Yes. I mean, you'll spot the mistakes or often they spot them themselves. You know, they come in and go, oh my God, you know, I got that bit wrong. And you, and then you can, you can, and then you just help them all. One, I tell them all they will make mistakes. Yeah. Tell them all they will make mistakes and that it's important that they do and that they will learn way more from when they get it wrong from when they get it right. Yeah. Even though I will give them feedback on when it went well. Um, but, you know, we do, we do a lot of consultation skills teaching and training so I will sit in with people and I'll watch them consult but I'll also get them to watch me consult okay and I'll ask them to look out for certain things I will say I'm going to try and do this you know I want you to have a look out and see or tell me about you know what you saw and teach them to analyze what's going on because if you teach someone to analyze it you can become you can be really conscious of what's happening and you can then do once you get good at that you can have the internal dialogue as yeah. it's going along. Yeah. So most of the time I don't really think about it until it's not going so well. Yeah. And when it's not going so well, I'm thinking... Like, why it's is almost this, like why that isn't... sort of like helicopter vision yeah. of yourself, isn't it, as yeah. you're going through that, that so you the, can So there was a very it. famous um, GP educationalist called Pendleton, and he has a book, and um, there's a, you know, it's the second head sitting on your shoulder. Yeah. I have a picture of me reading that when I was doing my GP exams before I was before I qualified, sitting on a dive boat in in, in Ireland with my dry <laughs> suit around my waist, reading the book, studying. <laughs> and that's a you know, uh, and so that second head yeah. of the di- internal dialogue of going, oh, it's not going so well here. Why? What have I missed? Yes, you know, yeah. Um, so that real self awareness mm-hmm. is really important. But you have to teach people; they've got to be able to, you. Know, it's 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 as well with the skills, like anything, a complex skill takes yeah. time and you've got to learn little bits of it and you yeah. practice those and you become better at them and then you put them all together and then you keep going around that circle of, of practicing. But you yeah. need someone to help you. You've got to have someone to give you feedback yeah. and help you Uh to, to work out yeah. what was going on and help you with suggestions or models of other things that yeah. you could try. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think the modelling of it's really important. One of the things that, you know, when trainees come in to ask me about stuff, uh, you know, my one of my typical answers is always go, well, I always do this, but I don't know if it's right. Shall we look it up? Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. And, and I guess that having that awareness and then having the confidence to be able to ask for help, mm-hmm. which I think when we you look back at that, often that pressure to be really perfect stops for you from asking for help yes. because you believe that that demonstrates a weakness whereas yeah. actually being open to saying actually mm-hmm. I could do with a bit of help around this or actually just just asking for advice checking stuff off yeah. and giving people permission yeah you know absolutely and making it the norm making it the culture that yeah. you ask that the doors are open I expect you to ask if you yeah. haven't come to ask me why haven't you yeah. asked me you know? yeah um, and that's really different Becca I think that that being saying actually I expect you I expect you to come and ask I expect you to check stuff out and actually I'll do the same mm-hmm. is really important and so very different than saying my door's open if you need me yeah okay what's that mean do I need do, you know it's really different isn't it yeah. I mean I've worked for lots of people who go my door's always open and you kind of know it's not really <laughs> yeah um you mentioned um a while ago when we were talking before about a book called Human 2 uh, also human also human also human yes um so it's a, a psychologist called caroline elton who's done a lot of work with doctors careers advice particularly in london london deanery um who i was fortunate to introduce to speak to a medical meeting fairly recently and um and she writes a lot about doctors um and when they get stuck in their you know in their in their careers because it's a really hard thing to give up you know you're so invested you know if you've mm. you've, you've done well at a level you've then done five or six years at medical school and then you you know if you're if you're part way into training you'll have done another four or five years yeah. if you're actually qualified if you're actually a consultant or a gp you know that could have been six or seven more years yeah and you know and often family pressure, cultural, all the rest of it, and you can be really stuck in the wrong place. Yeah. So there's the complete, being completely stuck in the wrong place. But there's also about when people are really, really 
miserable and feeling they're in the wrong place or they're doing the wrong thing because of the pressures in the potentially toxic environment in which they're in and the very negative impact that can have on people's mental health. Mm. Sadly, doctors have pretty high rates of suicide. They have high rates of alcohol and drug abuse, um, you know, which is a reflection of, of, you know, the combination, as you say, of potentially a high achieving perfectionist type people, but then also sometimes environments Mm. in which they, you know, the, the, the expectation is too high and the support is not there. Yeah. Often talk to um, juniors about, so when I qualified, uh, which is 30 years ago now, uh, it was a very high, uh, there was a very, very long hours culture. Yeah. I qualified when it was still normal to do 80 to 120 hours a week. That was pretty much the norm. And you, you basically were there all the time. But then so was everyone else. Um, and actually the environment, although we we basically lived there, um, so did all your mates. And, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, someone would go and get a, a, a takeaway and, you know, it wasn't very good for your, your waistline or anything yeah. else. Wasn't wasn't very good for our mental health, or for our physical health rather. But there was a real camaraderie and we had a real you were part of a team and you were absolutely part of that team and you took great pride in you knew all your patients that belonged to your consultant and you know uh, and and so there was those supports and also if you got it wrong we didn't have the fear that they have now Okay. There was not that fear and now maybe you know the pendulum you could argue was too far that way in protecting doctors against mistakes and, okay. and, and yeah, the system yeah. and things, you know, potentially that was too far. But now the pendulum swung completely the other way and junior doctors now work far less hours than I worked, but their shifts are more difficult and they're, you know, potentially very disruptive on the shift work that they do. Mm. They're not necessarily feel part of a team, so they don't feel part of a you know, it's supported in the way that... Yeah, I they're not did. all in it they're not together in, it, no. in the way that you and are. The, and the continu- continuity that we had, because I was there yeah. all the time, I all, I knew all of my patients very well. Yeah. Um, and so I and so I had that. So I got to see people going through and the satisfaction of following someone through their journey, whereas now people, particularly in hospital, don't necessarily get that. Mm. Um, it's one of the things that when trainees come out to general practice, to us, one of the things that they almost always say is that appreciation of actually being able to see people, you know, over time yeah. and see them through an episode and, and things and the satisfaction that you get from yeah. from that yeah. and the learning you get from that. Yeah. Because otherwise, if you just see one person on a shift and you do something, you have no idea whether you what, what you did was right or wrong. You know? Yeah. Um, and so, so I think, you know, in many ways the environment, not everywhere, but can be very toxic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you, for the, for the trainees, I mean, you obviously have worked very closely with training the next generation of GPs. Mm. What kind of advice would you give to somebody kind of even before that? So somebody thinking about going into medicine. So it's an interesting one. You'd say, you know, would you advise your children? Yes. Now, neither of my children have chosen to do medicine mm. and very vehemently against it, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't counsel people about not doing it. Yeah. I still think it's an. You know, I still love my job. Yeah, and I love what I do, and I would say that it's still excellent. And I would hope that, you know, I would hope that there are changes afoot that that will make it better. It's it's never going to be an easy no. job, but there are potentially great rewards. Mm. And the other thing about medicine is that the variety is massive. There are so many different things that you can do. Um, I mean, I love doing general practice. I love that I, you know, I actually like that I have, I don't have a a humongous amounts of autonomy, but I have a reasonable amount of autonomy about how I organise my practice. Yes, there are quite a few constraints of how we do it, but I do have some control over that Mm. and how we organise things. I really enjoy 
uh, the continuity. I really enjoy looking after people over long term. Um, I enjoy the challenge of um, the, I don't know what's going to come through my door. I, you know, yeah. of a morning, I could deal with someone who's uh, with a new diagnosis of cancer. I could deal with someone who's got a long-term condition that they're living with. I could deal with someone who's got a, um, a significant uh, mental health problem or um, a sort of context-specific, you know, social thing like that. I could deal with an elderly person who's got three or four long-term conditions and a whole load of drugs to sort out. You know, a massive Or someone amount. who stubbed their toe. It, it did. <laughs> Most easy ones don't get to me these days, <laughs> but uh, you know. So, so the you know the div- the variety is is massive, yeah. um, and there's lots of different things that you can do. So, in my career, um, I have done a lot of education alongside clinical work and I think actually that's really important it's one of the things I do counsel all of my trainees that actually just doing day-to-day face-to-face clinical work is really really tough and you can't do that five days a week okay um well at least you can't do it well five days a week um but it's really but there's so many other things that you can do alongside that are really important Mm. so I did education but there's there's clinical input to the, um, what do you call it, sort of management of of things. So, you know, it depends on how they can reorganise systems at the particular time. But whatever way things, um, clinical work or clinical um, services need to be organised and delivered and actually clinical input into that sort of mm. thing. So working for um, CCGs or primary care trust or whatever whatever reiteration of the organization is called at the time yeah and uh, there's work with that there's um political work which i've never done like in medical politics so there's lots of this research you know so yeah. there's lots of other things that you can do alongside face-to-face clinical work and i think they complement each other absolutely i don't think i would have been hopefully as reasonable at teaching as I was without doing the day-to-day yeah. job absolutely have to do that but equally all of the teaching and training and things that I've been involved in with that I'm sure improve my day-to-day clinical yeah. work just giving you that space to be able to step back and look at it through a different lens absolutely and to talk to people outside your own immediate yeah. little organisation. Yeah. Because as a practice, my practice is quite small. Yeah. We're quite a small practice. Um, so it's really important that I interact and I work with people outside my practice. Yeah. For those ideas and things. I do appraisal work as well. Um, and that's great because I get to go and visit a whole loads of other doctors. Well, I have to talk to them on Zoom these days, but I used to get yeah. to go and visit their practices. You know, and then as part of work you know asking yeah. them about their working lives I go also well, how do you do that then well that's a really good idea yeah <laughs> like, you know. yeah I think that's massive and I think when you know you talk about you know that intensity and it's interesting when you talk about your life as a junior doctor and actually you know those and I've worked in not in medical field but in those kind of environments where almost the intensity and the closeness and the long hours become it's an exciting way to mm. work within that but you see things through the lens of that. Mm. And as you say, that can allow things to be held within that. You can't see a different perspective. No. And so I think what you're describing there about being able to take that step back and look at what you're doing clinically mm-hmm. through a different kind of set of lenses and a different set of experiences mm-hmm. no, is really important. It is really important. It's really important that you get to step back and you go and talk to other people and you, yeah. you know, because otherwise you can really get into... I mean, we all know, you know, that the the dangers of just being in a little bubble and you, yeah, yeah. you think you're doing the right thing, you know, sort of group think that you yeah, absolutely. just are there. And if you don't aware to the dangers of that and 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 have some sort of challenges and stepping stepping out of it. Yeah, you know. it's huge. Mm-hmm. So in terms of so you know, I I see you know, the the hours that you work and the complexity. And we talked about a bit of that today in terms of mm-hmm. the complexity and the, you know, the the breadth of what you have to do. How do you create balance within your own life that takes you kind of outside of that? So okay. how do you create that to keep you at your best as a GP? Yeah. Um, 
I think I'm lucky insofar as I know that I am physically and psychologically pretty robust. Okay. And I know what I do. I can't actually expect other people to do the same. I'm so quite conscious of that. And I'm also conscious that I need to make sure I'm not kidding myself. Um, so over the years, I have... Um, so in the first instance, um, I've lost any concept of being house proud. My, <laughs> my house used to be quite tidy and clean. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> um, but that's not really important. Yeah. Um, so for me, um, for me, people are really, really important. Um, general practice potentially can be a really isolating job. Because potentially mm. you could sit in your surgery, and particularly and now particularly with COVID, and just be on the phone or on your computer the whole time and not yeah. speak to anyone else because everything comes down the line. Everything's electronics on my computer. So within the practice, it's really important. We have a really good culture of always meeting up at lunchtime yeah. and you know, and and spending and you know, spending some time face to face with people, even in COVID, yeah. even with masks on, we made sure we still get to see each other face to face for me friends and family is really important my sort of social network and and things i take great support from that um for the last until very recently um you know we had horses and so having that was really really important Mm. to me massively important to me because it made me go outside i couldn't make an excuse because they've got to be done yeah so i can't put off you've got to be out in the fresh air doing some exercise and i can't say oh no i haven't got time to do that which is which for me i know i could very very easily just work yeah. and go, oh, no, I haven't got time. I haven't got time. But yeah, because your work is never finished. It's never it? finished. You, know, you could work never, 24-7 ever. and you're not going to get to the end. Never. So for me, I know that the way I work is by having other commitments that I can't say no to. Okay. So you make social arrangements or, um, you know, having having horses. And I had to go outside and I just love being outside. I just, just... That is really, really important to me. And mm. now, in the, more recently, from my physical health, you know, I knew I needed to get back to, to um, doing more physical activity that I have been doing in the last few years for one reason or another. Um, and so that's really important to me. But I, I have to schedule it. For me, it's got yeah. to be sort of scheduled in there. Um, and I'm much better in the early mornings. I'm much better if I mm. go and do things relatively early. Yeah. So, Yeah. And Outdoors. that's, again, it's sort of that awareness of yourself, isn't it? So that you know what enables you mm-hmm. to thrive and to succeed and what doesn't. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? I think what, when you describe about that, the, the culture you came from, when you came from the 120 hours mm. a week culture, mm-hmm. that's pretty tough to unpick, isn't it? To mm-hmm. actually think that working... 40 hours yeah. is actually okay. And, you know, there's a lot of my generation who will talk about, you know, it's every generation has done oh, yes. this. Yeah. Every generation yes. has done this. I mean, I remember, you know, uh, one of my consultants when I was a junior doctor telling me... You had about, it easy. Yeah, I mean, it was. You know, <laughs> she got she got Saturday afternoon off to get married and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I only had to do 120 hours a week, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and so it's very easy to potentially be a bit of a dinosaur and say that, but actually... I think a lot of my junior colleagues, you know, they look at what we do and they look at what I still do and they sort of go, you must be bonkers. I yeah. don't think they're probably Well, it's interesting because right. you mentioned your children, you know, and that sort of like, I'm not doing that. And I think it's an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're virtually the same age and, you know, I think our children are the same age and it is that when they look at mm-hmm. the life choices and actually the way that we've worked and kind of go, no, thanks. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that generational shift is really interesting and mm. there's definitely very different pressures on today's generation with yeah. social media, everything on the internet. I mm. j- joked earlier about, you know, patients coming in going, I've Googled it and I've got this, which is, you know, I think they must live in a terror of dying of actually when you could Google oh, gosh, your symptoms, yes, you'll find something hideous. Yeah. So I think they have something very different to us. But I do think it's quite interesting that they want something different from their mm. lives yeah 
than than we expected. Absolutely. And certainly my junior colleagues, when trainees are coming to and finishing and they're looking at jobs, I, you know, people, none of them will go for what might be called full-time. Yeah. So, you know, full-time general practice is considered eight sessions a week, which would be potentially four days a week, which is a minimum of 40 hours, but probably a lot more. And actually... And I and I agree with them. I think yeah. you know most of them don't go for jobs that are going to be that long. They'll go for six session jobs, which gives them some flexibility to do other things yes. along uh, work related. Yes, but but alongside it, yeah. And actually, the intensity now of the day job is such that you know that actually eight sessions is probably not healthy. Yeah. It really probably isn't. You're probably not going to do it very well. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. and, and I think when you talked about, you know, do the different things that allow you to learn in a different way, mm-hmm. and you talked about group think, and I think, you know, there are so many other things, you know, we've talked about it together in the past around some of the kind of um, critical thinking concepts. And actually, you need to be able to look at the world in a different way to be able to look at what you do in a slightly mm-hmm. different way. Mm-hmm. Um so that's so important, isn't it? Yeah. Then actually, as you say, coming from that world, which was again, and I don't mean macho in a kind of male sense, but actually that kind of real oh, macho, you know. And, and there's still... There's, the less sleep you need, yeah. the, you know, the better you are. there's still a very medical thing about if you're a doctor, you don't get sick. Yeah. And that's still there, despite actually a real push and a real push from above about, you know, one of the core competences that we look at when I'm looking at the competences, there's a, well, they call them capabilities now, but they're essentially competences that trainees have to achieve in their training. And one of them is, is around fitness to practice. And fitness to practice is about understanding when you are fit to practice and when you're not fit to practice. And I certainly grew up in and there's still a lot there around like you're not sick and there's pressures on you're not sick is one doctors don't get sick two you know that if you're off that's going to put more pressure on your colleague on your colleagues so you don't want to do that um and there's also, you know, also we're human. We're, you know, yeah. there is. It's the, back to that. It book, is about it? Also, also human. human. Although, yeah. as, when I was talking to Caroline about it, um, she said that the number of times she's been introduced as almost human, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably quite a telling, telling slip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and you have your own fears. Yeah. So I, 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 one of the things that I, I always do a session on for trainees is about being uh, a patient so yeah. being as a patient as a doctor but also being a doctor to a doctor um I do quite a bit of that but you know but actually being a doctor to a doctor is quite challenging they yeah. are quite tricky patients yeah um uh, but it's also very difficult to be a patient as a doctor yeah I bet and uh, you know I know that myself yeah. and you know and, I mean it sort of goes full circle doesn't it when you talk before about you know doctors being and um, doctors and nurses having some of the biggest lifestyle challenges where mm. you know uh, so many as you say you know doctors and nurses smoke mm-hmm. drink mm-hmm. don't exercise enough under massive pressure so that stress that they're under that mental stress which mm. actually comes out in all sorts of ways that you don't see in no. yourself do you other people spot it in your mm. in you mm. um Absolutely. where you do mm-hmm. no definitely definitely yeah so yeah, I'm sure my family would uh, be able to um, give them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll get them in later and do a follow up. Or, or they'll just say, "Well, yeah. they'll never see us." So, the family you know. of a the family of a doctor is a yes. another session. Oh well, thank you very, very much, Becca, for joining me today. Well, it's been a pleasure. Um, it's fascinating. Becca, thank you again for joining me today and for sharing your experiences and perspectives with us. Listening to you talk about the reality of being a GP today, how this has changed in the last 30 years and the resultant shift in the skills and behaviours this has required has been really interesting. Um, I especially enjoyed talking about the pressure to be perfect and the balance to be struck to achieve learning and also to avoid burnout. To those listening, I would really encourage you, if you take one action away from this conversation, 
is to reflect on your own life and your business and look at areas where the opportunities to learn actually lie. Um, Are you striving for perfection in areas where good enough would still deliver the results you need and also leave you that space to learn and grow? Thank you so much for listening today. And if you'd like to hear more conversations, then please subscribe.